As you may have uh, imagined, uh, after this past Sunday, a couple past Sundays, I have been receiving emails. And by the way, I really appreciate these emails that people send, sharing about where they're at. Um, and uh, depending on time, I'll see how many I can get through. But they're pertinent for uh, where we've been. We're uh, going through Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. to But also particularly where we're going. Uh, this is... Uh, from a single mom in our church, and uh, when I got this, I immediately emailed her and said, do you mind if I share? And she said, I don't just not mind. She's like, I need you to share. Okay, all right. Uh, Peter, Sunday sermon, wow, I have to say, it stung a little as a divorcee. This woman addressed a lot of the issues I fight consistently. While I feel like it was absolutely necessary for me to divorce, I also struggle with the fact that it was not for biblical reasons. We talked about marriage and divorce last week. The emotional and mental abuse I suffered in a 10-year marriage left me hollow and unrecognizable to my family. It was necessary to cut away to save my life. Nevertheless, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do. I literally felt like I experienced a death to part of me. During your sermon, I grieved for my marriage Not because it ended, but because in the 10 years, listen, in the 10 years, I never experienced being fully known and fully accepted. In fact, I was fully known and fully rejected, which is why this relationship left me destroyed and completely unable to emotionally connect to the world and my children. Then she goes on. She says, while I feel like God has healed me and restored me in the last five years, there's still some unique areas that I struggle with and that no one uh, around me could relate to. You see, I was the first one in my family to go through a divorce because in my family, people stay together no matter what. So no one in my family can relate to me on this level. I find myself understanding what it feels like to be married and bonded to someone, divorced and that bond destroyed, and single again and left with parenting two children. I struggle with the thought that I lost my chance at a marriage, the type of relationship that you have vividly described in these recent sermons. I've been rejected by married couples. While it's okay for our children to play together, they treated me as if being divorced was some sort of a contagious disease. Or even better, a desperate attempt to steal a husband. I'm not fully accepted by singles because they say stupid things like, well, it's better to have loved than to have never loved at all. Don't say that. Don't say that. Don't ever say that. Please. It's what's been said to me. So I can't openly share my feelings and desire for a spouse and relationship for fear of rejection. I can't tell you how many times people have assumed that I was never married And there's a high possibility that my children have different fathers along with different last names. This particular school of thought is founded on the fact that I have a black face. When I say that I'm divorced, there's literally a shock face that I can still mimic today. If what I've said above is not enough, there's still more issues I have to face. I can't tell you how many Christian guys I've talked to or dated that bolted at the mention of my being a divorced single mother. It's like fast and furious. There's definitely a smoke when they run away. I love She has a wonderful sense of humor. Or better yet, they feel like there's a good chance that they'll have sex because, you know, wow, you must really be hurting after abstaining for five years. And yes, despite the norm, I choose to abstain until I remarry. My ex-husband was my first, and my next hopefully will be my last. 
I already struggle with the fact that black women are the least desirable to date, so my unique situation just places a cherry on top of a rejection Sunday. I was impressed by the letter you read from that guy because, frankly, I thought those types of Christian guys just didn't exist. I've been trying to cope with the fact that I'm an undesirable candidate for love and acceptance when it comes to relationships and that there's a real possibility that I'll end up like most of the other black divorced single moms I've come across alone. I feel that God has called me to serve women through counseling, but my fear is that I will not be able to help them cope with their status in society because I still struggle with it. While I know that God fully knows me and accepts me, the pain I feel for my status in this society as well as among my Christian community runs deep and continues to scar. This for me as a pastor in this church is one of the most difficult things and one of the most heartbreaking things. I just wanted to share my experiences and perspective on this sermon series. It's not addressed enough, and I'm grateful for the truth that you share every week. Peter, I hope that things will change, but I'm not an optimist when it comes to this topic. I've definitely lost my faith in my Christian brothers. How do I move forward from here? Oh, here's a, a, another one, real quick. Um, I'm both excited and nervous about your sermon for today, Peter. The last two sermons that you preached on sex totally changed my views. See, I come from a family that was very open about sex, so I was never all that curious. Here's my story. I remember my whole life, I was told that you keep yourself pure and that God will reward that and he would honor it. But it feels like punishment. I feel angry with God like he's forgotten me. And then I feel bad for feeling that way. Not for a second do I feel that I'm such a good person and that I did this all on my own, that I should get some glory because I chose to wait. But does God see me? Does he care? Can anybody relate? Nod your heads if you can. Shake if you can't. Um, I've been sharing with people that the last three sermons I've preached uh, in this sermon series has been just absolutely draining. You know, I, I go home and I'm like a vegetable. I it literally, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, just completely drained. Um, not because it's a difficult topic to preach. You guys, you guys know I don't mind preaching on difficult topics, but. Uh, this sermon series has just absolutely just strained my pastoral heart, my pastoral burden. That is, I don't preach these as sort of theoretical sermons. When I prepare these sermons, I know of people. I think of lives. I see faces. I hear stories. So as I said before, I'd much rather, and, and, and then today particularly, it's, it's very appropriate that I'm preaching with this table because I would much rather sit here and have you sit there and over a cup of coffee talk. I don't want to come across like I am I don't want to do that. You're already like hypersensitive anyway about these things. So I don't want you to sit there and go, he's just an insensitive. No, I would much rather reason with you. Um, we're talking about singleness today. Because we're going through the Sermon on the Mount and we came to the very difficult passage where Jesus talks about marriage and divorce and he takes his time at the very end to talk about singleness. And it's so appropriate because you can't talk about marriage and divorce without talking about singleness. 
Ernest Becker is a guy who wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning author, wrote a book called Denial of Death. And you guys have heard me talk about this before. He's a, he's a Nazi Holocaust survivor, and he says something fascinating in this book that, that, that addresses some of this. He says that we, this modern society, culture that we live in, is the first society that doesn't believe sort of in the afterlife, that once we die, that there's nothing afterwards. It's, we're the first modern society that actually believes this on a whole, holistic scale. And so here's what he says. So this, this society, this culture that you and I live in, not believing that once we die, that's it. We just kind of we cease to exist Believing sort of in that insignificance of life has done something. That is, it's forced us and has caused us to look at our culture, our world today and go, how do I find meaning? How do I find significance? How do I find something that knows that I matter? That, that in the grand scheme of things, that my existence is not in vain. How do I find something that gives me a sense of hope and purpose? Well, if you don't have God, what do you do? He says that our modern culture society found that solution in the romantic solution. He says, a society that no longer believes in this higher sort of sense of purpose and meaning, that there is a God and that there is a future to our lives. When we got rid of that, we're the first society that said, here's how we're going to find that now. We're going to find it in the one, the significant other, the romantic solution. So he says, never in society has a culture, another culture been, been around, where we put as much emphasis and as much significance, as much meaning in finding the one, in romance, and in relationships, so much so that when we don't have it, we're not just discouraged, we despair. We're not just lonely, we're devastatingly lonely. Interesting theory. So we live in a culture and society by the way, if you're going, I don't think that's true, open your eyes, open your ears. Somewhere like 2,000 ads you and I are exposed to, some say, on a daily basis. TV, radio, site, billboard, cars everywhere. Romance, sexuality, dating. Are you alone? What's wrong with you? Find somebody. Singleness? What's singleness? Rejected at all costs after this is the message you and I are brainwashed. And the Bible comes along and says, not only does God paint a more beautiful, glorious picture than what our culture has to say about singleness, but man, it gets to the core. It gets to the core of the questions of, is there meaning? Is there life? Is there significance? Is my identity? What am I here for? Sermon on the Mount is about kingdom living. Sermon on the Mount is about what happens when the rule and reign of God invade our lives. Sermon on the Mount is what happens when a group of people bow their knees to the king and begin to live their lives centered around the values and king, uh, agenda of the king. And, and it forms this community, a counterculture community, an alternative community to the outside community that does everything differently, like money, race, sex, everything differently. And this beautiful countercultural alternative, alternative community becomes a powerful witness to the watching world that when Jesus Christ becomes king of your life, that you radically change. But when it comes to the issue of, and we'll talk about this in the upcoming weeks, money, sex, relationship, and dating, there really isn't much of a difference between us and the world. There hardly is much of a difference between us and the world. When it comes to the issue of sex, we talked about two weeks ago, for many Christians, it's a consumer good. We use it to satisfy our own personal needs rather than a mechanism for whole life oneness. When it comes to the issue of marriage, Christians 
We idolize marriage in the name of value and family like it's the end all and be all. Do singles know what I'm talking about? Have you been to churches where if you weren't married with kids, you felt like a second-class citizen? Good Lord, that's what churches have done. We've elevated marriage to a godlike status. And the Bible says, far from truth. And when it comes to romance and dating, don't even get me started. What does the Bible say about not just marriage and singleness, but about marriage and divorce, but about singleness? Romance? Quick thing. I prepared the sermon this week, and I was going to preach both on singleness and dating. There's no time. I can't. Because either I was going to shortchange what it means to be single as a Christian in the name of talking more about dating, or I was going to talk a lot about singleness and shortchange. I don't want to do that, so here's what I'm going to do today. Because some of you probably never heard a sermon on singleness and what it means to be a single Christian. I'm going to talk about singleness, and the next week is Baptism Sunday, and the week after that, I'm going to spend an entire sermon on, as a result of what the Bible has to say about marriage, divorce, and singleness, how do we go about relationships. Okay? So if you came today and you brought somebody and go, he's going to talk about relationships, sorry. I'm going to talk about singleness. Frankly, though, it's more important. Because if you don't understand what the Bible says about singleness, you're not going to date right. Do you hear me? Okay. So let's, Matthew 19. Matthew 19. This is where we left off last week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually read the entire passage leading up to what Jesus says about singleness. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. I'll review. Then he says, verse 10, check this out. Then the disciples said to him, man, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's just better not to get married. To which all the single men are like, that's right. Commitment phobes, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Anybody sitting there going, Jesus talked about eunuchs? Jesus talked about what, what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus says that there are some people who are constitutionally unable to marry. He's talking about physical eunuchs. And then he says, there are those who are called spiritually not to marry so they could serve the larger kingdom. Can I say that again? There are those who are constitutionally unable to marry, the physical eunuchs. And then Jesus says, there are those who are spiritually called. Everybody say called. Say called. Called. I know, I know you're nervous right now, but that's okay, all right? Spiritually called not to marry for the sake of the kingdom. And, and, listen, listen, and the power of the kingdom comes into their lives in such a way that they have the power and the ability to go unmarried. 
Let me just put up the point. Let's just be shocked and sit on it, and then we'll unpack this. Here's the point. Singleness under any conditions has to be seen as a calling or you cannot endure it. Anybody? Amen? (laughs) Oh, this is going to be a fun morning. Oh, this is going to be a fun morning. Singleness under any conditions has to be seen as a calling or you cannot endure it. Jesus has been talking about divorce and finally in verse 10 he says that the disciples just can't take it and they go, man, if this is what it means to be married, if that's demanding, if it's that demanding, then who wants to be married? And Jesus goes this, he says, listen, listen, listen. The only way that you can go unmarried is if you can accept it. What is he saying, if you can accept it? He's saying the only way that you can go unmarried is if you see your unmarried status season as a calling. If you see your season of unmarriedness as other people made me this way, you will never endure it. There are some of us, if you're single, you can be permanently called to be single. Now, if you're sitting there going, I don't want to be, don't worry, God's not the kind of God that goes, you will be, I don't care what, no. So just chill out, okay? Just chill out. Just. (sighs) There are those, like Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, which we're going to look at today. There are those who are permanently called, and the power of the kingdom works in their lives, so they don't want to be married. They're not devastated by loneliness, and they're not yearning for romance that absolutely is sort of like toxic to their soul. And if you go, do you know anybody like that? Yes! There are absolutely people like that. There are absolutely people who are not sexually burning. They're sitting there going, but I am sexually burning. Thank you very much. I am. You're sitting there going, I am sexually burning, as Paul says. And you're saying, I know I don't have the gift. I don't want the gift. I don't have the gift. Take it back. Thank you very much, okay? There's a return slip. Take it back. God says, if that's you, listen. It's still a temporary calling. There are some of us who will be permanently called to singleness for the sake of the kingdom and the power of the kingdom works in their lives in such a way that they can go without it. But the larger point that Jesus is making is, and there are some of us who have been temporarily called to be single right now. If you're single right now, the Bible says it is a temporary calling. How can it be a temporary calling? The one who can accept it should accept it. The only way you can endure it is if you see it as a calling. Almost every single one of us in this room for a part of our lives are called to be single. There's some of us who for a part of our lives will be called to be married. But Jesus says the both groups there's ultimately a sense of calling on your status. Real quick, if there's a calling, it inevitably implies that there's a what? A caller to that calling. Do you believe this? Let me put this up here. I put this quote up. 
I, I've put this up here in many, many, this should be like a Bible verse because it summarizes so much truth of what we talk about. Do you believe this? Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Everything is, this is John Newton, everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that withholds. Romans 8, 28. For God works for the good. That's what he means. Everything is necessary that he sends. Not, do you believe that if you're single, that a loving, wise God who is in control of every facet of your life has called you for this time to a temporary calling to be single? If you see your singleness as, well, I'm single because I'm just not desirable, you will never be able to endure it. If you see your singleness, well, I'm just single because you know what? Christian men are just lame and they just won't ask women out. You will not be able to endure it. Well, I'm single because you know what? I was busy through a career and life just kind of passed me by. You will not be able. The only way you will be able to endure your singleness is if you see it as a calling. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he and it's in there, well, if God loved me, okay, can I just ask you something? So if God loved me, then, so basically you know better how your life ought to go than the creator. So basically the one who created the heavens and the earth and holds the universe, Hebrews 2.1, in the palm of his hands, you're saying to him, you know what, God, when it comes to my romantic life, I know better. I have a timetable. I have a schedule. By the way, God's grace never works according to our timetable. Never. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing is necessary that we don't. Do you believe this? Do you believe this fundamental truth, not just about your future, about your relationship? You know what I love? I love talking to single women in our church who understand this. I was just talking to a single woman three weeks ago. We're just kind of talking about future sermons. And she said this. She goes, you know what I hate, Peter? Do you know what I hate? I said, what do you hate? Here's what I hate. What I hate is, she's in her 30s. When I go to a wedding, Christian wedding, and someone's getting married, some old woman or somebody will come up to me and go, there, it's okay, it's okay, you know, your turn will come soon, you know, God has a wonderful plan for you, God, and she said, I love this, she's like, I wanted to go, how do you know, how do you know, maybe it's God's plan that I'm married with kids, maybe it's not, you don't know that, so don't tell me that, I was just like, amen, sister, It was so refreshing for me to hear. So refreshing for me to hear someone who is absolutely struggling with this. But her point was this. Christians in the name of trying to make people feel better go, you know, God has what. And she basically said, it may not be God's plan and will for me to be married. And she was saying, even though I struggle with that, I would rather struggle with that than have somebody tell me to make me feel better. Something that might not be true. I was like, amen. Everything is necessary that he sends. Everything, Peter. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. 
You guys, inherent in this whole idea is this idea that to be single is not inferior or superior. I, I know for some, listen, this whole morning, because you and I have been so brainwashed by the idolatry of sex in our culture and romance, that it's almost impossible to think of this. But the Bible says to be single is not inferior or superior. It is heartbreaking for me. It is absolutely heartbreaking for me to hear stories of men and women who sit in churches and, and week after week, subtly and not subtly, hear messages that if you're single, somehow you're second class, somehow you're not. Frankly, I need to ask, some of us grew up in churches where we were told, where we were told that if we would just be content in God, God would send us a man. Ladies, say amen if this is where you come from, right? This is rampant in Christian cultures, and it's religious. It's not the gospel. And so they, Psalm 27, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And you have single women walking around pretending to be content so that God would send them a man. I'm, 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 I'm perfectly content, Lord. Where is he? Where is, where? <laughs> Ladies, that's toxic. Walking around pretending to be content so that God, what is that? You know who did that? It's not the secular culture. It's the church. Not everyone who can accept this word, but only to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who could accept this should accept it. What is Jesus saying? Everything all of creation has been marred by sin. Everything in all of creation, good creation, has been tainted by sin, you guys, and that includes marriage. Marriage is a wonderful gift that God invented and gave to us, but ask any married couple. It can be the most wonderful, amazing thing, but it could also be the most painful thing. Do you know what it's like to be in a bad marriage? It's like being in the middle of an ocean and dying of thirst. There's water everywhere. And you can't drink it. Peter, what's worse than being single? Being in a bad marriage. Ask any married couple. The worst thing than being single is being in a marriage where you're lonely and you're hurting. Jesus says, that's why being single can be a life-giving, fulfilling thing if you receive it as a calling. All right, what does it mean to see it as a calling? It's saying to yourself, God, I'm not going to fear marriage, but I'm not going to rage against my singleness. Say this with me. I am not going to rage, rage, rage against my singleness. That's what it means to see it as a calling. See, as a calling to go, God, I'm not going to rage against my singleness. I am not going to say, other men have made me this way. I'm going to say, this is a temporary season, a temporary calling on my life, and you have given me this season so that I can be of service to you and to service others in the kingdom. I'm not going to fear marriage. I'm not going to shun commitment, but I'm not going to rage against my singleness. Blame you. Blame others. I'm going to trust that you care for me. You love me. You know what you're doing because everything that you send is necessary. Everything that you withhold is necessary.
to see it as a calling, whether permanently and temporarily, is to go, God, I'm not going to rage against you. I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to... I'm not going to deny the fact that I want to be married. I'm going to deny the fact that I want to be with somebody. But I refuse to rage against you. Don't be single because someone made you that way, Jesus says. Be single for the kingdom. You know what? It just dawned on me. Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And we think in every way, jobs, occupation, blah, 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 blah. But maybe seek ye first the kingdom of God also means your desire for relationship and marriage. When you seek first things first, second things and third things will come in order. You seek second things first and you get nothing. Seek first the kingdom. Don't see your singleness as something someone may see it as a calling in which God has set you apart for his kingdom. In response to a bunch of questions that people were writing, the Apostle Paul actually addressed this in the book of 1 Corinthians 7. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time in 1 Corinthians 7, the primary passage where he talks about singleness, and then we're done for today. 1 Corinthians 7, 7. I wish I could go through the entire text, but let me go ahead and go through some of the verses where he specifically focused on singleness. You need to understand the fact that Paul even had the audacity to write and respond about singleness in his day was absolutely astounding. The fact that Paul, in a written document in that time and place, where he talks about singleness was absolutely unheard of, and you'll see why. Check this out. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each one of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another. Can I just ask, how many of you guys know for a fact that you have the gift of celibacy? Can you raise your hands so we just don't have to, you know, worry with you? Okay, so nobody in our church has the gift of celibacy. Did y'all see that? Nobody. That means we're all sexually burning, okay? That's what that means. I just want, why would we want to waste time with some of you like, oh, I'm perfectly celibate, I'm fine. We don't want to waste time with you. We're all sexually burning though, okay? You all got that? Okay. Um, verse 8. Now to the unmarried and widows I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Can I just say something? Can we just all acknowledge that our burning comes from our idolizing of sex and romance in our culture today. Can we just all acknowledge that? Can we all acknowledge that our desire for this is not just why I came out of the womb this way. You didn't come out of the womb this way. We are inundated with the culture that bombards us with an idolatry of sex and romance. And what's Paul saying? He says, remind yourself that sex as a God will never deliver on its promises. Sex as a God, romance as a God will let you down just like any other idol. Real quick, one minute recap. The Bible says that sex was given to us by God as a foretaste, as a metaphor for the ultimate union that we will experience with God when we see him face to face, when we are one with God. The Bible says sex was not created to be a consumer good where you do it for personal fulfillment, personal happiness. You will destroy it if you do that. God says, I gave you sex because it is a foretaste, because a husband and a wife, a foretaste of the intimacy and closure that you will experience when you see God face to face. That means that sex is not the end all and be all. Sex is just a signpost. 
It's like somebody driving into Chicago from somewhere, Gary, Indiana, parking at Gary, Indiana, where it says 27 miles to Chicago, and they're going, woohoo, I'm here in Chicago. Where, where, where is this? You're not in Chicago. You're in Gary, Indiana. But that's what we're doing with sex. Sex is a signpost that points to a larger, greater reality. It's supposed to stir in us this desire for, man, this is awesome, but this is a foretaste. This is a, a foretaste of the ultimate joy, ultimate ecstasy, ultimate closure and intimacy I will experience when I see God face to face. And some of us are going, no, I'm parked right here. This is great. And God's going, you do that, sex will never be fulfilling. You empty it of its power. Verse 17, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. Verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. I know you read that and go, okay, what? This is absolutely remarkable. He says, are you married? Stay married. It's a wonderful gift from God. And then he goes, are you single? Stay single. It's a wonderful gift. Don't be too hurried to change statuses. And you're sitting there going, but what's the big deal? It is an absolutely unheard of thing in that culture. Why? That culture is not an individualistic society. It is a traditional society, which meant there is no you. There is us, we, and the family. There's no individual honor, individual achievement, individual success, individual anything. Your family was everything. Your status came from your family. Your identity came from your family. Your significance, your security came from your family. Your family was everything. So you had to be married, and you had to have heirs, or you were a nobody. And in that culture, Paul says what? It's perfectly okay. It's perfectly okay to be single. In that culture, he says, it's perfectly okay to be single. What was he saying? i got to read a couple quotes from commentators and historians. Rodney Stark in the book Rise of Christianity. If Christian women became widows, they enjoyed substantial advantages over other women around. The other women faced great societal pressures to remarry. Caesar Augustus had widows fined if they failed to marry within two years because single adulthood was absolutely illegitimate. You had no significance apart your family. You had no future apart from your family. You had no security apart from your family. But among Christians, widowhood was highly respected and the church stood ready to sustain widows, allowing them a choice of whether to be married or not. Christian singles in that culture were a radical witness to the coming kingdom of God and saying, my hope is in that. Christian singles, when they remain singles, listen, Christian singles in that culture remaining singles were literally saying to their world my identity is not found in being married and having kids my significance is not found in married and having kids my my achievement is not found in, in married and having kids my success all that who i am is not found in married and having kids my identity significance security who i am is found in the coming kingdom and who i am in him you think that's radical then What would it be like if Christian singles in our church saw their singleness as a calling and said, oh, my identity is not found in being married. My identity is found in the kingdom. Uh, my significance, my security, my future is not found in being married. 
having family. It's found the king. What a radical Frankly, people would look at you and me strange and go, who does that? And you and I would go, people who belong to the kingdom. One more quote. This is by Stanley Howells. Singleness was legitimate in early Christianity. Not because sex was questionable, but because the church lives in the overlap of the ages. Christian singles gave up having heirs. In ancient times, there could be no more radical act than that. This was a clear expression that one's future is not guaranteed by the human family or your children, but by God. And listen to this. Now in the overlap of the ages, both singleness and marriedness ultimately witness to hope in God's future renewed world. Do you know why you're married? So you could say to your marriage, my hope is not in my marriage. My hope is not in my children. My hope is not in my family. We're married because my hope is in the coming kingdom and the king. Do you know why you're single? It's not for personal fulfillment. You're single so you could be witnesses to the fact that your hope is not in marriage, romance, family, heirs. Your hope, your security, your identity, your worth is not found in those things. Your hope is in God's future renewed world. Are we testifying to that reality? Are we testifying to that reality. Let's go on. Verse 28. For those who marry will have many troubles in this life. I don't even need to elaborate. Married couples? Amen. And I want to spare you of this. Thanks, Paul. Verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. And then he says this. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they don't. And some of you, husband, it's not what you think it means. It's not. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Verse 30. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. And those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. This is so dense here. It is so dense here. Let me just, I'm going to try to unpack it. I don't know if I can do a good job. Paul, like Jesus here, is teaching the overlap of the ages. What we call the already and the not yet aspect of the kingdom. God's power to renew all of creation has entered the world through the death and resurrection of Christ, but it isn't finished yet. God's kingdom rule and reign to restore all things is here substantially, but it's not here completely and totally. We live in this overlap of the ages, and Paul is drawing out the implications of that. He's drawing out the implications of that, and he says, so people who live with kingdom hope don't overly invest in the things of this world. They don't put their hope and overly invest into the world. They find internal peace and future hope in the coming kingdom. And he says, so that's why, he says, we buy things. We buy things. But, but we, don't, we don't pull our all eggs, in, all eggs in that basket of buying things and having things. Why? Because our ultimate wealth is in God. The only thing that lasts forever. He says, we use things and we have possessions and we use them. We need to concern ourselves with the things here and now. But we don't ultimately idolize 
We don't ultimately spend all our time, energy, gathering, maintaining, and cleaning, and ensuring the things. Why? Because our treasure is ultimately Jesus, the only thing that will last. Because everything else in this world is just temporary. It's passing away. Now, check this out. He takes that implication about things, and he applies it to marriage. He says, just as we don't overly invest in the things here and now, we don't overly invest in things when it comes to relationships like marriage. The world may use and possess, find identity, significance, and worth in the things here and now because that's all they know. But kingdom people, not just with things, but kingdom people, and when it comes to relationships like marriage, he says we don't overinvest. We don't find our ultimate hope. We don't find our ultimate security in marriage. Why? Because this too is passing away. Do you know what the word passing away in Greek meant? It was literally used in the world of theater where one scene would change and shift to another scene. And Paul is literally saying, marriage, as beautiful, as glorious, as amazing it is from God, he says, it's temporary. It's not ultimate. God didn't give it to you as the ultimate. Just like sex, it's a pointer to a larger reality. If you look to your marriage to be your ultimate, you'll be disappointed. If you look to your marriage as the ultimate, you'll be devastated. If you look to your marriage as the ultimate, you will not be the spouse that God called you to be. Ephesians 5, go home and study the passage. The passage on marriage in the entire Bible where Paul talks about marriage says that marriage the relationship between a husband and wife is to be a reflection of the ultimate relationship that you and I will have when we get to heaven. The relationship between a husband and wife is not ultimate, it's penultimate. That marriage, as beautiful, as glorious, as highly exalted marriage is, the Bible says that that marriage is supposed to be a reflection of the ultimate marriage that awaits us when we see God face to face. One time, somebody came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, so uh, this woman married this guy, and he died. So she married his brother, and he died. And she married his brother, and he died, and so on and so on and so forth. And the question was, so when she gets to heaven, who will she be married to? Do you know what his answer was? Here it is. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. You know what that means? He's saying marriage as we know it here on earth will not be marriage as we know it when we see God face to face. Why? Please, if you don't listen to it, listen. Marriage is penultimate, not the ultimate. Why? God created marriage as beautiful, as wonderful, as amazing as it is. So that the joy and the ecstasy that we experience in marriage would stir in us a desire, a stir in us a yearning, a stir in us a hunger for the ultimate spouse and the ultimate family that can truly fulfill us. Dang, Peter. I was hoping once I got married, my problems would be solved. Hey, Peter. I spent my whole entire life looking for the one. Hey, Peter. I was hoping that once I got married, I'll be healed of my faults. 
I'd be lifted out of my nothingness. That's what you're all thinking. Brandy, thank you so much for this morning, girl. I so appreciate you because you are, yes, echoing hundreds of people that are in this room. Are you hearing me? Kingdom people don't get overly elated about getting married or overly disappointed about being single. Kingdom people don't get overly elated about being married and don't get overly disappointed about being single. Kingdom people don't put their hope in finding the one and rage against singleness. Kingdom people don't think that marriage will ultimately give them identity, security, significance. Kingdom people know that ultimate wedding still is to come when the world that we are waiting for comes, when the wedding of the Lamb and His bride finally takes place. You will be able to look up and see the only spouse that will fulfill you and the only family that will complete you. So if you are going to get married this year, stand at the altar and remind yourself there is a greater, better wedding awaiting me. Because if you don't, a month later you're going to look at your spouse and go, who did I marry? We're going to do that anyway, yes. Are you hearing me? I know this is hard. And it absolutely sounds crazy in the culture that we live in. You're sitting there going, you are absolutely destroying everything that I believe about dating and marriage. Yes, I am. Marriage, as God-given and beautiful as it is, is not necessarily the highest choice that you can make. Can I get an amen on that? Marriage is created to be God, by God to be a human reflection of the ultimate love relationship with God. It points to the true marriage and it points to the true family that our souls need and our hearts want. Your marriage will not satisfy you because your soul is too big for it. That romance and that relationship will leave you empty because your soul is too big for it. So they're going, but you don't know my man. I don't have to know your man. He's a man. He's got this. He's a man. And he will... (laughs) Pastor Michael and I are going to be doing weddings this summer. This is the reason why, listen, our culture looks at marriage as personal satisfaction, personal fulfillment. Do you know what the Bible says marriage is for? It's not for personal satisfaction. Listen, it's for personal sanctification. The Bible says that God created marriage so that you and your wife, husband and wife, could show each other the power of the gospel as you work towards becoming more like Christ by dying to your sinful nature and growing to be more like Christ. God created marriage. Listen! Can you imagine me doing that at a coffee shop? I've done it like once, and I'll never do it again because it scared the whole coffee shop. The Bible says that just as Christ is given the church to make her holy, Ephesians 5, to sprinkle her clean and to holy and to make her pure. The Bible says that you are given a spouse so that they could become their best sacrificial self through your best 
self-sacrificial service. Do you know what that means? And I'll talk about this more in two weeks. That means when you and I look for a spouse, personal fulfillment, personal satisfaction, here's how we look for it. We look for somebody who is low maintenance, has all their together, and has got all the things in order. Why? Because you look at marriage as personal fulfillment. If it's personal fulfillment, you want somebody who has already been there, done that, got all their stuff together. That's why you will bypass a number of people who are perfect for you. But if marriage is about personal sanctification, you don't look for a finished product, a beautiful sculpture. You look for a big block of marble. And you go, I see the future, you, that God can make you to be. Right now, <laughs> right now, but I want to go on this future with you together. Let's go on this future together. That's what marriage is. And if you realize that, and you realize that you are completely driven by personal fulfillment and personal satisfaction, why? Low maintenance. Do they have their stuff together? Are they good looking? Do they have their financial things in order? Blah, 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 blah. But basically you're going, so I don't need to sacrifice much. I don't need to bend much. I don't need to do anything because you'll just satisfy me. But if marriage is, no, no, no. It's not about me. It's about me creating, making holy sanctifying, sacrificing for you to become the best you that God called you to be, you will take any man who goes, you got some potential. You got work to do, bro, but you got some potential. So we'll work together. And any man will look at a woman and go, you know what? You know what? You might not have all the qualities that I think I want in a woman, but that's not what this is about. I'm looking for someone who will go on this journey with me and help me and become more like Jesus. So will you work on me as I work on you? That's what you look for. Implications, and then I'm done. By the way, guys, guys, can I just say this? This is for like two weeks from now. Guys, please, please, ask that young lady out. Ask that young lady out. No, and ladies, don't clap. Clap with your heart. Clap with your heart if you can. Just smile. Guys, I'm serious. Do you know how many conversations I get from women in our church who say, so-and-so plays games with me? So-and-so, I think, gets feelings from, will not ask me out. What's up with Guys, ask a girl out. And please, if you're a man sitting there today going, but I'm spiritual, Peter. When it's time, the Lord will send her to me. The Lord will send her to me. And we walking down the street, I'll be like, the Lord has sent you to me. The Lord, that's stupid. I've heard some, that's stupid. How often do you go home after work, man, and go, you know, Lord, I would like some dinner, but you know my needs. I pray, believe that you will send me some dinner. You don't do that. You don't do that. You pick up the phone and you call sticky rice. But I like some Chicken, cow, soy, please, and make it extra spicy. That's what you do. Men in the church, it's okay to ask a young lady out. What's the worst thing that could happen? She rejects you? Grow up. Application. Young ladies, I just need to speak. I can't pick up. I'm like literally Michael preaching the, I, I, listen, listen. Instead of complaining about the lameness of single men in our church, I will simply say this. Becoming and becoming the woman, becoming the person that you're looking for, 
is looking for. Become the person that you're looking for is looking for. What do I mean? Don't worry about the lame single men. Work on yourself. Don't spend all that energy thinking about the lame Christian men in our church. Don't. Don't even wait, waste a second. Let them work. Become the woman that the man that you're looking for because believe it or not, there are godly Christian men in our church who would love to date. And you go, no, there aren't. How, do you know all the hundreds of young men here? There are single men in our church who are not captivated by beauty, who are not captivated by wealth. Who are not ca- there are single men in our church who are genuinely looking for single women who love Jesus and are content. Applications, and then we're done. Married people, here's what I need from Jenny. See, sitting there, singles, or married people going, oh, man, I wasted my time coming today. I'm all married already. No, no. Application, married people, here's what I need from my wife. You ready? If my wife doesn't love Jesus more than she loves me, she's not going to love me well. If my wife does not love me or love Jesus more than she loves me, my wife is not going to love me well. Even inside some of our marriages, there's sexual idolatry. If the spousal love of Christ is not fulfilling you, you will look to your spouse to meet that need, and they can never, ever meet that need. If your spouse does not love Jesus more than they love you, they will never love you well. If there's sexual idolatry in our marriages because we are looking to our spouses to go, you fulfill me, you're my security, you're my significance, you're my identity. If you're looking to your spouse to do that, it is going to create havoc in your marriage. The best thing that you can do in marriages, if our marriage is a pointer to the ultimate marriage that awaits us, is to work on yourself and make sure that you love Jesus more than you love your spouse. Singles, if you are not falling in love with the spousal love of Christ, Your distortion about marriage is also distorting your single life. And your distortion about single life is distorting your marriage. What do I mean? If you are not captivated by the spousal love of Christ, you will never be in a healthy marriage. You You will inevitably look to your spouse to be for you what they can never, ever be. So let me leave you with this. And then I got one thing to say to our entire church. If you and I are called to temporary or permanent singleness or marriage. Not for personal fulfillment, personal happiness, but to be a witness to hope in God's future world. Then the question that we need to ask is this. What will make me most useful for God's kingdom? Say that with me. What will make me most useful for God's kingdom? When you want to be married or when you want to stay single, the question is not, how can I be happy? How can I be fulfilled? That's not the question. Kingdom people go, in my season of marriage, in my season of singleness, the question that I'm asking is, what will most clearly and compellingly make me a sign of the kingdom? What will most clearly and compellingly help me to be a testimony of the kingdom? What will most clearly and compellingly, whether I'm married or whether I'm single, be a witness to the kingdom? What what will make me most useful for kingdom? That's the question we ask. In marriage or in singleness, what will make me more useful? So for some of us, being married will make us more useful for the kingdom. And for some of us, being single will make us more useful for the kingdom. The question is not, 
personal fulfillment, personal happiness. You complete me, I complete you, we're happy. The question is, what will make me more useful for God's kingdom? To me, this is the only reason why the Apostle Paul had the audacity to say, I wish that every single one of you were as I am. I wish, why? He wasn't just talking hyper-spiritual talk. For Paul, it was literally true. For the Apostle Paul, being single meant that he was able to do things for the kingdom that he would have never been able to do had he been married with kids. And that's why he could say, my entire life vision and perspective is what will make me most useful for the kingdom. And right now, it's being single. When is the last time you asked your question about that in regards to your status in relationship? When's the last time you and I said, what will make me most useful? For God's kingdom. 